National Gallery of Ireland's podcast series inspired by our temporary exhibition, Mondrian. One of the creative arenas that has become intrinsically linked with Mondrian's work is that of music. Over the course of this exhibition, the gallery commissioned jazz musician Emily Conway to explore this facet of Mondrian's life and career. In this, the first of three episodes that are the outcome of that project, Emily considers Mondrian's development as an artist and the musical soundscapes that surrounded his work in Holland and Paris up to the early 1920s. Hello and welcome to Music for Mondrian. In this podcast, I'm going to explore with you the soundscape surrounding Mondrian's work as music becomes more and more important to the artist. And indeed, I would go so far as to say absolutely visible in his later canvases. Over my time researching Mondrian the last uh, few months, he's become for me a very sparkly artist. Um, The first reason being his love of jazz, which as a jazz vocalist myself, I can only say he was absolutely correct in loving. And the other reason is his philosophy, his optimism. This sparkles through his work, I think. Um, I read early on that Mondrian believes that life is always right. He believed that life is full of obstacles, but these obstacles are realities that reveal the disequilibrium that has to be opposed, but constructively opposed, so as not to become similarly negative. Now, given that Mondrian lived through, pretty much lived through, two world wars and the Spanish flu, this could be no facile optimism. And as I say, my curiosity was piqued as to how somebody would develop and live out this philosophy, this optimism. I should add, these are just my explorations and there is a world of information and scholarship beyond what I touch on here in this podcast. Um, And because I found it all so fascinating, I did put it together as notes on my website. So if you go to emilyconway.ie and you look up music from Mondrian, there's a page there that has the notes for this podcast if anybody would like to read a little more. And the other thing is that I also made a, a Spotify playlist and it's called Music for Mondrian. You can find the link on my website or if you go to just Emily Conway on Spotify, you'll find it there. I'm going to skip over the earlier part of Mondrian's life and go straight to the 1890s when he was already a pretty much um, established artist in Holland. In the 1890s, Mondrian was producing paintings pretty much consistent with Dutch tradition in style, subject matter and form. The earliest Mondrian painting in the, in the National Gallery exhibition dates from 1895 and it is a small study of the Royal Wax Candle Factory in Amsterdam. In it, a premonition of his later work is detectable in how he blocks in colour and the dominating use of horizontals and verticals to divide the space. Set at the edge of the Boringvittering Canal, the blackened chimneys make a grid-like reflection on the grey water. And these premonitions are evident throughout Mondrian's early work, I would say, but to all intents and purposes, unconsciously so. By contrast... 
If we go over to Paris in the 1890s, we encounter a singular chap, one Eric Satie, six years Mondrian senior, uh, and neither he nor his music were consistent with dominant Parisian trends or traditions. Eschewing the traditional view of composer, he instead wanted to be known simply as a phonometrician, one who works with and measures sound. Satie was against all excess, exaggeration, ornamentation and melodrama, either in composition or in performance, anything that might smack of romanticism. For him, all of this obscured the music. He was, in fact, really an early exponent of Joycean scrupulous meanness. His compositions are brief and often quite stark, almost uh, like aphoristic statements of his harmonic and rhythmic explorations. Satie did not think a composer should take more time from his public than strictly necessary. Uh, and I'm just thinking, Stravinsky has a quote that too many pieces of music finish too long after the end. So um, Satie was not guilty of that. But he also diverged from his romantic colleagues in, in, in the titles that he gave his work. There was no poetry or references to nature. And in fact, um, Eric Satie often made up the names of his, of his compositions. And there is still a degree of head scratching going on over uh, what exactly Gemnopédie or Nocienne, uh, particularly Nocienne, what that might refer to. And in Nocienne, there are no bar lines or no time signature the better to release the music as far as Eric Satie was concerned. But, needless to say, in the Belle Epoque Paris, this unadorned and divergent approach was not exactly welcomed. So at this point, I'd recommend listening to Satie by Noriko Ogawa on the playlist. Um, and I think that in these pieces, and particularly how uh, Ogawa plays them, uh, we can hear that essential sparseness and an angularity, uh, also not unlike Thelonious Monk, um, that to me and is, is a sort of a musical anticipation of Mondrian's later paintings. Something that began to become apparent and to fascinate me in my research around the soundscape surrounding Mondrian's work was the synchronicity and simultaneity of events and how they interrelate. The first example of this comes in 1909, if we think across from St. Petersburg to Amsterdam to Vienna to Paris. It's a pivotal year, musically and artistically. In Amsterdam, Mondrian exhibited his luminous paintings at the Stedelijk Museum. And these paintings, such as House and Sunlight, were quite a departure from previous work, with the use of much brighter colours in a pointless style. In departing from the Dutch artists around him, Mondrian showed himself to be the most controversial artist of the exhibition. That same year, he joined the Dutch Theosophical Society, having been interested in the spiritual movement for some time. Now, rather than attempt to sum up this movement led by Madame Blavatsky and Do It in Justice, 
I think I'll defer to some lines by our own Yeats, also a Blavatsky enthusiast, to give a sense of this spiritual movement. In the poem Vacillation, Yeats writes, Between extremities man runs his course. A brand or flaming breath comes to destroy all those antinomies of day and night. The body calls it death, the heart remorse. But if this be true, what is joy? And since trees would become so important for Mondrian uh, in working out his abstractionism, Yeats also wrote... A tree there is that from its topmost bough is half all glittering flame and half all green, abounding foliage moistened with the dew, and half is half and yet is all the scene, and half and half consume what they renew. There were many spiritual movements at the start of the 20th century. Uh, Theosophy, Svedenborgism, Kabbalism, Rosicrucianism, of which our friend Satie was a member, uh, neo-paganism, political communism, anarchism, ultranationalism, and in The Rest is Noise, Alex Ross proposes that this was due to the sense of uh, possibility and vitality at the turn of the century, a restlessness to break with the old classical forms and beliefs that led many, particularly artists, into the spiritual seeking. 1909 was also the year that Stravinsky was discovered, Diaghilev attended the performance of Feu Fils in St. Petersburg and was charmed. So much so that he brought dancers Vasilov Nijinsky, Anna Pavlova and Ida Rubinstein from the Imperial Theatre in St. Petersburg to the Châtelet Theatre in Paris to found the infamous Ballet Russe. And included in my playlist, Music from Mondrian, are some excerpts from the first ballet that Stravinsky wrote in Paris in 1910, The Mesmerising Firebird, which I would encourage everybody to listen to because that ballet is so beautiful. Another artist um, who joined the Theosophical Society in 1909 was another Russian, Kandinsky. Already sensitive to the connection between music and art, he wrote of the possibility of a new realm in which musical experience is a matter not of sound, but of soul alone. From this point begins the music of the future. And a good friend of his, who was in Vienna and working on a similar quest to Satie, albeit going a little further, was Schoenberg. Schoenberg wanted to purify music of ornamentation like Satie, but also the inherited meaning of tonality. Schoenberg wanted to create a new music in which the absolute logic of composition would become its pure expression. And in 1909, Schoenberg's Opus 11, Three Pieces for Piano, particularly number three, is an example of where he dispenses entirely with the tonal means of organisation. And in an abandoning the use of a tonal centre, Schoenberg dissolves the structures from which Western music had derived its sense of shape and order for 400 years, no less. Thus sounded the emancipation of dissonance. If that wasn't shocking enough, which it was, 
and was met with no more than Satie, quite mixed reaction. Uh, also in Vienna, architect Adolf Loss manifested his attack on Art Nouveau's compulsion to cover everyday objects in wasteful ornament by beginning construction on the Loss House. And the Loss House would turn out to be a modern building that would shock uh, turn of the century Vienna. Around the same time, it's interesting that in Paris, the establishment who had so averted its gaze from uh, Satie's ungainly antics might have been turning a slightly less disapproving glance his direction. The Jeune Ravalite, a group of musicians who followed Ravel, began to proclaim their preference for Satie's earlier work, uh, reinforcing the idea that Satie had in fact been a precursor of Debussy. Now, Satie could surely have done with the money from this attention, but it wasn't in his nature to court popularity. And with not much more than a shrug of his shoulders, Satie carried on his quaint path with his own eccentric explorations. It's an interesting response on Satie's behalf, I think. When we consider it was a time when artists like Picasso and Dali had begun to grasp the concept of fame and that cultivating a persona might serve not only their ego, but also advance their art. But for artists like Satie and indeed Mondrian, this was not interesting and could only be an irritating distraction. Indeed, for all the artists I discuss here, Schoenberg, Satie and Mondrian, they share a similar attitude to, you know, what would turn out to be the revolutionary aspect of their work, viewing it very sort of unremarkably as the next logical step. Schoenberg would later write, I am conscious of having broken through all the fetters of a bygone aesthetic, but he would also say I was a conservative, forced to become a revolutionary, but what I did was neither revolution nor anarchy. Mondrian too would see his neoplasticism as the next logical step from cubism. But in 1909, Mondrian had yet to take the next logical step, which he realised when he attended an exhibition in 1910 showing early cubist works by Picasso and Braque. Paris, 1912, taking the next logical step. Breaking off an engagement and abandoning a comfortable position as a fairly well-respected Dutch landscape painter, in December 1911, Mondrian moved to Paris. He arrived before Christmas at the very peak of La Belle Époque. Paris was a city at fever pitch of intellectual and artistic innovation, invention and experimentation. Driven dizzy by all the hope and high-mindedness of a new century with glimpses of invincibility, Icarus flying too close to the sun before spinning into the disillusionment and devastation that would come with World War I. But in 1911, all was well. And Mondrian was coming for his art, to be in the energy and activity of the Cubists. And this decision 
though he would barely spend three years in Paris, would prove transformative for his work. In fact, we would probably never even know of Mondrian had he not taken this risk. I was lucky to catch the exhibition at the National Gallery just before another lockdown closed it on Christmas Eve last. The exhibit beautifully shows how Mondrian's work leaps forward to engage and integrate the exciting new style of Cubism, even as it shows the artist finding his own way with this new language. In a similar way to which Schoenberg picked his way through traditional harmony towards the dissolution of tonality, Mondrian's tree compositions trace a similar path through a gradual, complete dissolution of the figurative towards pure abstraction. But Mondrian does Cubism Mondrian's way. Typical Cubist subjects were the still life or the human form, but Mondrian explores the style through a study of nature and man's new nature, the city. In contrast to the Cubist too, his compositions so show no attempt to describe volume. His trees are flat and they're void of natural dimensions, thereby erasing any trace of natural form. Also at this time, like Kandinsky, he starts removing any trace of narrative from the titles of his work and starts calling them compositions. So, from a certain perspective, it could be said that Mondrian arrives at his abstraction through a deep study of nature. The Paris 1913 season opens with a scandal. Sacre. The right of spring. Le Sacre de Pontin. Ballet with Diagla's Ballet Russe. Music by Stravinsky. Nijinsky's most adventurous and daring choreography to date and equally daring stage designs and costumes by Nicholas Röhrig. Shouts from the audience and praise and protest during the performance were so loud the dancers could not hear the music and Nijinsky had to hide in the wings calling out the steps. Ultimately though, this was a suicide scandal. Its affront of tradition, musical, dance and theatre paid off. Stravinsky's score transformed how composers thought about rhythm, structure and harmony. Nijinsky's choreography with its dominant parallel positions, uh, not one turned out positions and not one ballerina on point, shocked the ballet world, challenging its canon on classical ballet. This bombardment of the new, I would say, did much to open the ears in Paris to the later sounds of jazz and also open the floor to modern dance. Given this musical earthquake, it is interesting, to me anyway, to learn that it is only when it comes to Paris that Mondrian's ears open to music. Prior to that, I certainly find no evidence. Although, to be fair, I also found very little evidence of there being a musical scene in Holland in the early uh, 20th century. Certainly none uh, comparable to its art scene or comparable to the music scene of Paris and Vienna. So, by all accounts, it would seem that it is only in uh, his 40s and in Paris that Mondrian shows any interest in music. He struck up a friendship with pianist-composer, also Dutch, Jacob von Domsler, who in fact travelled all the way to Paris to meet him. Von Domsler was fascinated by the emerging horizontal-vertical duality in Mondrian's work and its increasing abstraction. 
and inspired particularly by his plus-minus compositions, Van Domsler composed Stelproven, which is experiments in style for piano. And I think it's very interesting to listen to Van Domsler's uh, Stelproven. I'd suggest, while looking at Mondrian's composition 10 in black and white, which is also named Pier and Ocean. And in the playlist, it's uh, played by Keith Veringa. The balancing of dualities, um, as we see in the perpendicular intersections of Composition 10, the plus minus of this painting, was becoming a central concern of Mondrian's work and his writings. He was at this time formulating his ideas that he would later share in an essay, The New Plastic in Painting. This particular painting won praise also from another Dutch artist, Theo van Dusburg, who described it as a most spiritual impression, the impression of repose, the repose of the soul. Van Domsler's piano suite represented the first attempt to apply the Steel principles to music, but we will find out about the Steel a little later on. With the outbreak of World War I in 1914, Mondrian found himself in neutral Holland, unable to return to Paris. He remained there, where he became part of a coterie of like-minded artists, including Van Domsler, Theo van Doesburg, van der Leck and others. Already by 1916, however, Van Domsler was falling out of favour with Mondrian for lapsing into melody. Anyway, among these friends and uh, artists, and in agreement with many of their ideas, Mondrian assimilated and processed the rich influences from his time in Paris. Nineteen seventeen war, the stale parade, surrealism, cubism, jazz. Another um, occasion of the synchronicities that I found so fascinating in this project occurs in the year nineteen seventeen. Nineteen seventeen turned out to be the bloodiest, one of the bloodiest years of uh, World War One. It was also the year of the Russian Revolution. And yet against all this widespread death and destruction, it was also, ironically, a year of major musical and artistic developments. Going to Holland, a multidisciplinary group of Dutch artists, architects, designers, musicians, including Mondrian, founded the De Stijl Art Movement and Journal. In the very first issue, Mondrian published his The New Plastic in Painting, an essay that set out the ideas of the group. In it, Mondrian wrote... The new plastic idea will ignore the particulars of appearance, that is to say natural form and colour. On the contrary, it should find its expression in the abstraction of form and colour, that is to say in the straight line and clearly defined primary colour. De Steel was a utopian art movement that believed that universalism could be achieved through abstraction. That's kind of a reaching beyond the uh, changing appearance of natural things to an immutable core of reality a reality that was not so much a visible fact, but an underlying spiritual vision. Meanwhile, in Paris, 
The first Cubist work, Parade, a ballet choreographed by Messine, written by Jean Cocteau, music by Eric Satie, costume and set design by Pablo Picasso and aided by the Italian futurist painter Giancomo Balla, was presented at the Chatelet Theatre. This ballet was so uh, unusual that the eminent poet and critic, when he was writing the programme notes, Apollinaire, had to, in fact, make up a new word, surrealisme, to describe it. And he coined this word several years before it came into existence. Um, The timing and subject matter of this ballet are both poignant. As war threatened to derail production several times, the central concern of this ballet is art's relevance. A group of circus performers struggle to attract an audience. So it's like the ballet asks the question in the middle of a war, what can art do? How can art attract an audience? How should art respond? And again, when we uh, locate this in in the invention of the gramophone, camera, um, the radio, we see these new inventions essentially displacing traditional art forms and the ways of making and paying for art. The other unusual thing about this ballet was that uh, the music that Eric, uh, Eric Satie wrote featured an unusual mixture of instruments, including a saxophone, a harp, a xylophone, butyphone, bottles filled with varying amounts of water and various noise making devices, including a typewriter and a revolver. Um, this is totally consistent with what we know of Eric Satie as a phonometrician, but in 1917, it challenged world war, war-weary audiences. Um, so Eric Satie shows himself to be a pioneer on the uncomfortable edge of the new. But his unusual instrumentation does anticipate the intona remori of the Italian bruiteur and futurists of noise music, which Mondrian would turn out to be such a fan of. Um, the production was denounced by one Paris newspaper as the demolition of our national values, but Stravinsky praised it for its opposition to the waves of Impressionism, uh, with language that is firm, clear and without any connection to images. Inspiring no such Parisian indignation was the arrival of a different type of music, jazz. Jazz came to Paris in 1917 with the American soldiers coming to fight in the World War- First World War. Um, These soldiers were accompanied by military bands, including the 369th Infantry Regiment Band, comprising of 50 50 black soldier musicians directed by celebrated Broadway band leader James Reese Europe. Europe was a gifted multi-instrumentalist and composer, as well as a tireless champion of African-American music and musicians. Europe was also the uh, band leader for Vernon and Duke, or Fern and Irene Castle, one of the most famous dance teams of the age. So he knew how to get people dancing. Fearless as soldiers, this army band got their name, the Harlem Hellfighters. Dominating in the battlefield, they also dominated in the concert halls. They played one concert and their booking was extended to a full eight weeks bringing with them dances like the Foxtrot, the Two Step, the One Step, with new songs uncovered and uh, freshly published by WC Handy, like Memphis Blues, St. Louis Blues, Beale Street Blues. They brought the ideals of the Harlem Renaissance to Paris. They took something back too. Reese Europe said, I have come from France more firmly convinced than ever that the Negroes should write Negro music. We have our own racial feeling, and if we try to copy whites, we will make bad copies. We won France by playing music which was ours and not a pale imitation of others. 
if we are to develop in America, we must develop along our own lines. Author Jean Cocteau was enchanted by the new American sound, describing jazz as an improvised catastrophe and a sonic cataclysm. He said, Le jazz band est à ses yeux comme l'essence d'une simplicité, d'une purité et d'une authenticité dont manque la musique française. Il faut se défaire de l'héritage de Claude Debussy. Assez de nuages, de vagues, d'aquariums, d'ondines et de parfums de la nuit, dit-il. Il nous faut une musique sur la terre, une musique de tous les jours. Just thought I'd say that in French there. This podcast has been very uh, English language centric. Why not? Uh, in 1980, Mondrian was eager to return to Paris. But in 1918, he also contracted the Spanish flu, um, a pandemic that took more lives than the Great War itself. It's believed he caught the disease from his housemate and the symptoms continued for months. Uh, and I suppose, you know, with we, we, uh, we can draw parallels. The situation is not the same, but um, certainly there are parallels with what we're going through today. Um, After viewing the Mondrian exhibition at the National Gallery in December, journalist Una Mullally wrote in the Irish Times, Viewing Mondrian's work, which progressed brilliantly in post-war Paris, it's natural to reflect on the artistic booms that emerge from disaster. How are we really to know that the Roaring Twenties were not only a release of creativity and hedonism emerging from the ending of the First World War, but also the end of their pandemic? Does such a golden era of creativity awake us if the stifling forces of late-stage capitalism can get out of the way? The echoes are pronounced. Well, I'm not sure at this point what will happen. Um, I'd certainly like to have an artistic boom, as I'm sure many of my friends would. Um, but I think we're still in grappling mode. These pandemic days are so unprecedented. Um in my case, in the absence of being able to collaborate live with my musicians, which is absolutely the great joy of my performance work, uh, even properly for this project, uh, I can say that I've been very thankful for this research. I feel uh, following Mondrian into his world has brought me into the company with of, of, of a host of wonderful artists and creatives at the beginning of the 20th century as they came to terms with World War I and their pandemic um, and how they refound or stayed connected to their art and the questions that they posed in their work. Um, at the same time, many of us can also identify with Schoenberg, who found it very difficult to write, if at all, during World War I. But we can be heartened by how he found his groove again afterwards. Um, but let's go back to Paris again at the end of World War One, when it would indeed begin to thrive again. Return to Paris, Dadaism, Les Années Folles. When Mondrian could finally return to Paris in 1919, he was coming fully formed in terms of his artistic purpose. But it was a different Paris. It was a different world. The question, what is art? Who is it for? 
uh, though asked before the war, evoked very different responses after the war. An estimated 20 million people died in World War I and subsequently a further estimated 50 million people died from the Spanish flu. So when we hear those figures, we get, I think, quite an unsettling sense of the scope of the trauma and tragedy that the world was grappling with coming to terms with around 1920. In The Rest is Noise, Alex Ross discusses the effect of war on art as saying, feelings of hyper alertness, distance and emotional coldness often overcome the survivors of horrifying events. Just as the traumatised mind erects barriers against the influx of violent sensations, so do artists take refuge in unsentimental poses in order to protect the self from further damage. Certainly there was a shift in the European mind, a turning away from luxurious, mystical, maximalist tendencies of turn-of-the-century art. And I think, you know, we could see this already starting to happen with people like Satie, um, but um, among the many post-war movements, including Dadism, Surrealism, Cubism, Futurism, it seems to me that Dadism seems to most fit this response. It was developed in reaction to World War I and the movement consisted of artists who rejected the logic, reason and aestheticism of modern capitalist society, instead expressing nonsense, irrationality and anti-bourgeois protest in their works. The art of the movement spanned visual, literary and sound media, including collage, sound poetry, cut-up writing and sculpture. Dadist artists expressed their discontent towards violence, war and nationalism. Despite the hardships and upheaval, or indeed perhaps because of them, Paris resumed its place at the centre of the artistic firmament burning through the years of Les Années Fall, the precocious, hedonist and reckless Roaring Twenties, the Jazz Age. Writers again flooded the city. Our own James Joyce on finishing Ulysses was wandering around looking for a publisher. Ezra Pound was scribbling his notes of uh, of, of criticism in the margins of the wasteland and sending it back to T.S. Eliot. Yeats and Hemingway were there. Artists Pablo Picasso, Arp, Max Ernst, Marcel Duchamp all strolled the streets of the city that had again become their home. Mondrian dabbling in dadism with his friend Theo van Dusburg, would call out to each other in greeting, Dada does, Dada peep. Mondrian was listening out for the futurists. They were on to something. He wrote to van Dusburg in 1919, I don't recall the name, the chief of the futurists. In regard to form, it seems to be going the right direction. I have myself discovered something of form in writing and later I'll try it and see if it works. The writing he was referring to that he would later send on to Theo van Dusburg, was um, Les Grands Boulevards, which was a stream of conscious description of street life that has echoes of Ulysses. Let's give it a go here. Ra, na, po, yo, 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 tick, nick, tick, nick, three, ro, pang, so, 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 boo, a multiplicity of sounds, interpenetrating, automobiles, buses, cars, cabs, people, lampposts, trees, all mixed against cafes, shops, offices, posters, display windows, a multiplicity of things, movement and standstill, diverse motions, movement in space and movement in time, manifold images and manifold thoughts. Les Grands Boulevards.
1921, noise music versus serialism. Shortly after penning his praise and pinning his hopes on the futurists, Mandarin got to go to a concert to witness 23 of the mechanical noise makers or Intona Romori, Priteur, presented by the painter and composer Luigi Rosolo. The cabinets that held the music or the noise making machines were painted red, yellow, and blue, which should have appealed to Mandrian's palette. According to Luigi Rosolo, who, interestingly enough, was also a member of the Theosophical Society, musical art today is seeking the amalgamation of the most dissonant, strange, and strident sounds. We are moving towards sound noise, not only amid the clamour of cities, but also in the one silent countryside. The machine has created so many varieties and combinations of noises that the meagerness and monotony of pure musical sound can no longer arouse emotion in the hearer. Excited after the concert, Mondrian wrote the essay The Manifestation of Neoplasticism in Music and the Italian Futurists. He wrote, To achieve a more universal plastic, the new music must dare to create a new order of sounds and non-sounds. Such a plastic is inconceivable without new techniques and new instruments. He also wrote, The silence should not exist in the new music. It is a voice immediately filled by the listener's individuality. Even Schoenberg, despite his valuable contributions, fails to express purely the new spirit in music because he uses this silence in his piece for piano. The new spirit demands that one should always establish an image unweakened by time in music or space in painting. Which was kind of tough on Schoenberg, because in 1921 he thought he was doing pretty well. He just developed and written his first serialist composition in the prelude and intermezzo of the suite for piano, opus uh, number 25. He wrote, Ich habe etwas gefunden, das der deutschen Musik die Vorherrschaft für die nächsten 100 Jahre sichere. In serialism, Schoenberg believed he had finally developed a system to foster musical development, something which he had regretted to sacrifice um, in the atonal earlier work. But for Mondrian, uh, it seemed Schoenberg was gone the way of Van Domslayer. Uh, his music was not the vision of neoplasticism. His essays do not um, reference parade, but yet I have to think that the cacophonous collision of Cubist surrealist and indeed futurist influences in the ballet parade and the achievements of the ballet rules with Nijinsky must have contributed to his ideas of what might be possible outside of painting. He quickly followed his essay on the uh, Italian futurists and um, with neoplasticism, its realisation in music and in future theatre. Inity lays out a neoplastic vision for future performances that would I think, uh, hearken today's immersive performance. He writes, The hall will be completely different from the traditional concert hall, neither a theatre nor a church, but a spatial construction satisfying all the demands of beauty and utility, matter and spirit. Compositions could be repeated just as films are repeated in the cinema. Whatever was lacking could be compensated by neoplastic paintings with long intermissions for the public to enjoy these paintings. He also imagined that when it became technically possible, these paintings could also appear as projected images. He also stipulated that the electrical sound equipment would be invisible and conveniently placed, which would certainly be uh, music to many performers and producers' ears. Tidy up those cables. Uh, and further... In the future, uh, yet another art is possible, an art situated between painting and music. 
So his thoughts are precinct when we think of today's performances. And I, when I read that, I, I, I think of uh, Brian Eno's recent 77 million paintings, which um, we had in Ireland there not so long ago. And I wonder what Mondrian would think of that. And so there we will leave Mondrian for now, musically pitting serialism against noise music. Yikes. What a battle. Cacophonous battle. Um, Thankfully, he moved outside of that fray when he discovered and fell in love with jazz, which will be the subject of the next podcast. Um, I do hope you've enjoyed this one and I hope you will join me for the next one, part two. The Spotify playlist you can find under Music from Mondrian. It's available on my profile on Spotify, Emily Conway, uh, and it's also available on my website, emilyconway.ie, E-M-I-L-I-E. And there you can also um, find some of the notes for this podcast. To close, I'm going to share with you a brief vocal musical idea that I'm working with. Um, Well, as soon as I, it's safe to meet up with my musicians again. Windmills were a frequent subject in Mondrian's earlier paintings. And um, there was a beautiful one in the National Gallery exhibition called Windmills in the Evening, which Mondrian painted in 1917. Um, I was captivated by this painting. Um, ostensibly, it's a worm's eye, opposite to bird's eye, I like that one. It's a worm's eye view of a mill against an evening sky. So from this low perspective, the mill is dark and towering and would threaten to dominate the painting, except behind it is a a dazzling white lattice of light as Mondrian catches the moment of an evening sun flashing through curving clouds. The mill's sails reach into the sky and you could imagine them cutting and dividing the space with black lines while they turn in the mystical evening sky.